thank you, Craig and music team, for leading us, as you always do, so well. These guys prepare faithfully each and every week, multiple times, to lead us. Preparation is a key, key aspect of, of life, isn't it? As I prepare sermons to preach, I always pray kind of like a twofold prayer for you and for me. I pray that, Lord, through the sermon that you would sanctify the precious saints and that you would draw lost sinners to yourself. And that's always been my prayer. And oddly enough, that's the purpose really behind the purpose of the gospel of John. You remember the purpose of this gospel? It's been written so that one might believe and then having believed have life in his name. And so the purpose of the gospel of John has an evangelistic purpose and also an experiential purpose. It calls one to faith and then it provides the means that we need having come to faith, that is, the glory of Jesus Christ. And we know that a very pivotal verse in this gospel is the 14th verse of the first chapter, that is, that the Word became flesh, Jesus became flesh, He dwelt among us, He tabernacled among us, He revealed God's glory, we saw His glory, John said, as glory from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we come with that in mind each and every time we come to this precious gospel. And if you're with us and you've been with us and you're part of this church, you know that we're in John's gospel, you know that we're in John chapter 12. And so I want to invite you to turn with me there in your Bibles to John 12. And we've been looking at this gospel for, for years now, really, and we've arrived at the final Passover. And in recent Lord's Days, we have seen that there's been a mass of people, millions in fact, people making their way up to Jerusalem as they did each and every year. But this year was a little different because all the excitement around Jesus resulted in a huge amount of people laying palm trees. And we saw the reason they grabbed palm trees is they wanted a military king to enter in and usher in a utopia. And so they got palm trees and they watched this very lonely and frail man ride in, not on a black steed like kings did, but on a donkey, never been ridden before. And that all came after Mary's extravagant act of worship, you remember, where she worshipped Jesus unashamedly. She took little regard for what anyone in society thought about her. Her worship of Jesus was first and foremost. And we, we've drawn so much from all of that. And then here we are now, today, in this somewhat unique little portion of John's Gospel, particularly John 12. And so I want us to read it together, picking up in verse 20 through to verse 26. That'll be where our hearts are drawn this morning. And I tell you one thing, that song that we just sung, it's wonderful to say to the Lord that I want to give my heart and I do give my heart and my soul to you, Jesus. And it's wonderful to know that we, we make it our aim to, to worship Jesus in all that we do. But there's a little line in that song that's hard to sing. Do you know which one it is? I live for you alone. Do, do you feel anything in you when you, when you come to that line? I, I do. I, I sometimes don't even sing it. And then I say, no, actually, I should sing it. And so I'm torn because I know the intention is, you know, I, I long to live for you alone, but that's going to be tested today. 
in our passage. It's going to be tested. It's good to have that tested. And so follow along with me in your Bibles as I read John chapter 12, verse 20, through to verse 26. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, that is the Passover. These then came to Philip, and who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is quite the passage. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as your people. Lord, we long to live for you more and more. We fail as soon as we start, and then we pick up again, and we long to live for you more and more, and then it reminds us how thankful we are for the Lord's day. So thankful for the way you just always express your loving kindness to us through song and prayer and reading of the word and the Lord's table and the preaching of your word. It's all by your divine design as your spirit pries our hands off our own sin as has been well said and places our eyes back toward Jesus and you know our frame, how frail we are. And so please help us, please guide us, please bless us, please aid us. We need you this holy hour. Give us attentive hearts and minds. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit of God. We thank you for Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, back in the day, it was probably about the 1800s, I think, 1800s or so, there was a church that had a pastor, and they really, they really loved that pastor, they truly did, but he would preach sermons too often that were carefully put together, full of data, but empty, empty of Jesus. Sermons, you see, can be full of all sorts of words, and yet still empty, void of Jesus. That must never, ever be the case. It was Charles Spurgeon who rightly said, quote, truth isolated from the person of Jesus grows hard and cold. Think about that. Truth isolated from the person of Jesus grows hard and cold. A sermon without Jesus in it is savorless and worthless to God's tired saints, and they soon seek other food. The more of Christ in our sermon, the more of light and life and power. Some preachers, Spurgeon said, are guilty of the most wearisome repetition, but this is not laid to their charge when their theme is Jesus, end quote. 
Spurgeon also said, leave Christ out, oh my brethren, better leave the pulpit altogether. If a man can preach one sermon without Christ, it ought to be his last. And certainly the last that any Christian ought to go hear him preach. End quote. And so for this particular pastor one Sunday in the 1800s, when he stepped into the pulpit to preach, there was a little handwritten note that he found. Perhaps you know this account, this true account. And that little note said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They'd grown tired of hearing data, but not Jesus. And so some saint just wrote a little note, we wish to see Jesus. Words taken out of verse 21 that we just read. Well, what ended up happening was that note so rocked that pastor that he took stock, he took heed, and he started to preach Christ-filled sermons more and more. And then down the track, he got up one Sunday to preach, and there was another note waiting for him, and it said, thank you, we see Jesus. And that really is the heart of the Christian, to see Jesus, to look unto Jesus with the eye of faith, looking into His person, His character, His revealed will, how He reveals God to us, His majestic glory as King. In Jesus, after all, we read in Colossians 2, chapter, verse 3, that all are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. We all need more and more of Jesus, because Jesus is our good news, when all seems too much, and He's our good shepherd when the way looks too hard to navigate, and sometimes life is too much, and sometimes it looks hard to know how to navigate it, and so it's in the pages of God-inspired Scripture where we have Christ Jesus showcased to us presented before us to see. And so as to warm our hearts, warm our hearts when we have wandered off and grown cold, to heal our broken hearts when life's trials have us hurting, and also to satisfy our hearts when the treasures of this world are enticing us. And God the Father in His wisdom from out of the treasure trove of His love gives us fresh glimpses of Jesus and His person all throughout our lives, which includes, get this, getting little previews, <laughs> getting little previews of what seeing and beholding more and more of Jesus in our hearts by the eye of faith ought to look like for us in our day-to-day -day life. In our passage this morning, we are presented very purposefully and very graciously with two previews of God's glory and love in the person of Christ so that we can live as believing ones to the glory of God. We have believed the purpose of the Gospel of John and now we must live as believing ones. You recall this purpose again. Never forget it, that you believe and that we go on believing as we go on beholding the glory of Christ. We live as those who have eternal life now, we've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus, 
And part of living as a believing one is to continue to live more and more for Jesus Christ. You can hear that song, I live for you alone. It stings. But it's a, it's a desire. Our passage seeks to help us to live more and more for Jesus today. And if you're taking notes, our passage, our portion of this gospel, this chapter breaks down very neatly into two. The first heading we see is number one, a Gentile preview in verses 20 to 22, a Gentile preview in verses 20 to 22. And then second, a glorious preview in verses 23 to 26. And so that's our passage, let's dive right in. Number one, the first we see is a Gentile preview in verses 20 to 22. I trust you see here that we're introduced to an altogether different ethnicity than the Jewish ethnicity. Uh, It was the Jews who went up to Passover, but it wasn't simply just the Jews who went up to Passover. But here is, very definitively, a different ethnicity. Look again at verse 20 in your Bibles. Now, there were some Greeks. Greeks. I don't want you to miss what's going on here. These Greeks, verse 20 tells us, were those who were going up to worship. They were going up to worship at the feast, the final Passover. Last Sunday, we ended in verse 19. The religious leaders there were so worked up about this Jesus that was entering in and all the people were parading Him as the one who was going to usher in the military utopia and the Pharisees were convinced that He was going to usher in this utopia as well. They had that wrong view of Jesus that we considered last Lord's Day. And they say, look in verse 19, you remember, look, the whole world has gone after Him. World. World in John is used not to speak of the entire world without exception, just everyone regardless. World, you remember, is used to speak of all without distinction, meaning not just one distinct ethnicity, but all ethnicities. Jesus died and rose again, not to save every person in the world. When you read world in John, it's not meaning that, but for all kinds of ethnicities in the world. And so, this all unfolds, as this all unfolds rather, you remember that Mary, she has worshipped Jesus back at the house extravagantly, most certainly unashamedly, Jesus has then entered into the holy city for what will be the final Passover. He rode that little young donkey, which, as I've already said, but by way of reminder, was not a warrior animal for a king, a warrior king. It was an animal for a man of peace and a priest. And the people, as he he comes in, they hail him as the king of Israel. It's the Jewish Passover, and then now, along come some non-Jewish people wanting to see Jesus. And it is as though God, by the pen of the Apostle John, is wanting to draw us in now, really closely, as we read, draw the reader in to see that just as the religious leaders in their fear, stated in verse 19, the whole world is going after Him, that by this introduction here of the Greeks, 
is now for us a very real and powerful symbolic illustration of God the Father's plan for God the Son in that the gospel message is not isolated just to the Jews but goes out across the world. That's what John wants us to see here in this opening couple of verses. You know, Jesus said so many incredible things in His earthly ministry prior to this point here. When He was entering into Jerusalem to die for the sins of the people, He said in Matthew chapter 15 verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When He first sent His disciples out to preach, He said to them in Matthew 10 verse 5, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, non-Jewish ethnicity, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But what did Jesus, sorry, what did Israel do as a nation? Well, we know they utterly rejected Christ and His gospel message and they did so over and over again. As Jesus rode in on that donkey into Jerusalem for the final time, we read in Luke's gospel, in his account, chapter 19, verse 41, when he, that's Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he what? He wept over it. What did he say? He said, if you, Israel, had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, hidden. For the days will come upon you where your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave you in one stone upon another because, listen to this, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's Israel. The message went to Israel, they rejected the message but that was not all that was in God's plan, was it? Because you remember, it's a very beautiful passage in Isaiah 49 verse 6, it's just remarkable. I still remember the day I first read it, it says this, it's God the Father speaking to Christ the Son, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Now, we know as good, robustly reformed, yet dispensational folk, that God is not done with Israel. And that the Old Testament, in places like Zechariah and Hosea and Isaiah, clearly state that God will restore the land, literally, to the Jewish ethnicity, the people of Israel, and that there will be an outpouring in the future of salvation upon them in the days to come. And yet we also know too that they are under a partial hardening, a sovereign hardening at the moment that Paul wrote of in Romans chapter 11 verse 25. A partial hardening that we are told will be in place until what? Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, that is, have been saved. You know, after Jesus dies as our sin-atoning sacrifice, as our perfect and final Passover lamb, and then 
rises again, He spends some time with the disciples before ascending to the Father in glory, and He tells the disciples that when He goes, He will send the Holy Spirit to come down and be their helper. And upon hearing that from Jesus, the disciples actually asked Jesus a question. You read about that in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They say, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Do you remember Jesus' response to that question? In the very next verse, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then what? And you shall be my witnesses just in Jerusalem. No. Good Bible people here saying no. That's not what He said. He said, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And then, as you keep reading the book of Acts, the apostles first preach to the Jews, and then the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, and the Jewish disciples, if you read carefully the book of Acts, they were shocked that the gospel went to the Gentiles. They were shocked that it went there. In Acts chapter 10, Verse 45, for example, you read that the Jewish believers were amazed that the Gentiles received the gospel and the Holy Spirit. They were amazed that that happened. These Greeks, these Greeks in our passage, I want you to know, they likely don't even come from Greece itself. But they are Gentile worshippers who've come from other lands to the Passover. And get this. They, as Gentiles, can only enter into the court of the Gentiles in the temple. They can go no further inside the temple to where the Jews would go. And so it's no stretch to imagine that their request that they make to Philip and then Andrew, uh, Philip runs to Andrew, and we know from this gospel and we know from the other gospels that Andrew uh, was not... Uh, introverted at all, he was extroverted, he would be quick to evangelize and quick to bring people to Jesus. It's no stretch to imagine that this request by these Greeks took place while they were in the court of the Gentiles and while Jesus, who obviously was a Jew, had passed on ahead into those inner courts. And so, this mention of these Gentiles, these Greeks here coming to worship and seeking Jesus, it really does serve as a preview, a preview of what is to come in a way, because we know that once Jesus dies upon that cross, there no longer remains a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, that is, between the Jewish ethnicity and all other ethnicities. Listen carefully to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 to 16 as I read, says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, that is not Jewish, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made both groups, that is Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall 
by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, that is Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having by it put to death the enmity, the enmity, the hostility, hostility that existed between God and man, and hostility that existed between man and man, ethnicities. It's all gone by the work of the cross. And so, the first thing we see here in our passage is Christ's gospel and love and glory. It goes out just, it goes out beyond just one ethnicity, and we know that because there aren't many Jewish people here this morning, but it goes out to all nations and peoples, and God, via the pen of John, wants us to see that here. And so, what's an application of all of that? What's, what's an application of such a reality or all of that? Well, first, aren't you thankful that God saves sinners from the remotest part of the world? I mean, we're pretty remote down here. Down under, whether that's here in New Zealand, here in Australia, or any Pacific island around here, you know, the gospel message came here by boat across the seas came by boat, no internet back then, came by boat, came by people what? Committed to living for Jesus, able to lay aside it all and sing that song, I live for you alone. I will go to down under those bottom islands and I'll carry a message in a book and I'll gladly lay aside it all. It's called global missions. The message of saving and sovereign grace came here down through missionaries sent with one burning desire to know Jesus and to make Him known. If you sit here this morning ransomed and redeemed by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for you, that message has come across the oceans to these lands and God used instruments. He planned to preach the Word, to share the gospel, to save sinners. He kept and fulfilled His promise to you, and He gladly receives the most ignoble of people from every nation, and He makes us all one. Second, ought we not then better keep alive that desire that they who shared the gospel with us had? Is it fitting to just cool down? The answer is no. That burning desire to make Jesus known and to know Jesus, to seek Jesus, must never go away because we never know when God would have one of those for whom He has scheduled a divine appointment with to be in our life and in our path. We ought to be always ready to share the hope that is within us. After all, we read in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we have been chosen, made holy, and part of God's own possession, so that 
we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Express purpose, so that. Chosen to preach the gospel. You know, Jesus told a parable in Matthew 21. It's an astonishing parable. The parable of the wicked tenant. The wicked tenant. In verse 43 of that chapter, he says this, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Israel, and given to a people, listen to this, producing the fruit of it, he says. The fruit of it. Jesus spoke of a transition from Israel to the Gentile nations there. In John chapter 10, he spoke of other sheep, didn't he not? He said, I, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, and I must bring them in, and they will come in, and we'll be one flock with one shepherd. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God, salvation, will be given to people from the nations of the world, and they will, he says there, bear fruit. And so, a quick third application. Have you experienced the work of the Holy Spirit that makes one seek after Jesus and then bear fruit? Have you received the new birth? You see, this here is God's glory previewed in the sending of the only begotten Son for the salvation of more than just the Jewish ethnicity, but from all the people from all the nations. And that's what we get a glimpse of in verses 20 to 22, a Gentile preview. You know, previews are interesting. We, we watch a trailer of a movie, a preview of a movie. Well, after the preview, you might go and watch the movie, and then you've seen the movie, you've seen what happens. And Jesus is speaking to people here who are pre the cross. We've read time and time again that they, they found it difficult to understand some of these things. They hadn't seen the movie, if you will, for lack of a much better term. You and I, we have not only seen the movie, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We are recipients of a new and better covenant with new and better promises because the priest is so much greater. There's a Gentile preview here, a little glimpse. Next, as we press ahead, we see, second, a glorious preview in verses 23 to 26. I want you to look at how Jesus, Jesus responds to the request to Him. Look at verse 23 now. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Notice how it's not addressed to the Greeks or even to the Jews. He just kind of, he now makes a statement to everyone. It seems like he kind of ignores their request and in some ways he, he may from one perspective, but he now just makes a statement that kind of just encompasses everyone. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Jesus is not responding to the Gentiles, the Greeks per se, but He is indeed responding to the situation pertaining to their request, as one commentator put it. These people, they want to know Jesus, they want to, they're seeking after Jesus, to worship Jesus, that's the heart of the follower. Israel rejected their Messiah, the Gentiles that God promised He would stir up faith in, are now coming to saving knowledge of Him. And so now, as that begins to happen, the hour has come where Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection to life will usher in that new covenant, which is a new community made up of people previously excluded and alienated, but now brought near to God by the sin-atoning, wrath-appeasing sacrifice of Jesus. That is the hour that has now come. And the fact that these Gentiles have now come seeking is a sort of trigger for Jesus, that the hour has arrived. Here it is, here they are. My father said to me back in Isaiah 49 verse 6, it's too small a thing. Here they come, the hour is here, my hour has arrived. It's no small thing that this hour has arrived, because this hour that Jesus speaks of here has been looming, and yet it's never been the time until now. Back in John chapter 2 verse 4, when Mary, His mother, told Him that the wine at that week-long wedding had run out, Jesus said, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. In John chapter 4, verse 21, at the well with the Samaritan woman, Jesus said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor up in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. His death would bring in the new covenant, a new humanity, the church, a community of believers from all peoples in all places. In John chapter 7, His own brothers implored Him to go up to Jerusalem and He looked His own family square in the face and said, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7 verse 30 we read, they were seeking to seize Jesus and no man laid his hand on Him. That's got to be somewhat sovereign providence and almost miraculous that Jesus is teaching in the temple, and they were seeking to seize Him inside the temple, but no one laid His hand on Him. Imagine how that plays out. I want to arrest Him. Every intention of their heart was to arrest Him and kill Him, but they can't somehow. It says, because His hour had not yet come. His hour. In John chapter 8, verse 20, we read that Jesus was inside the temple in the treasury, and that He was not seized because His hour had not yet come. Nothing could have made that hour come early, and not a single thing could make that hour come late. It is right here, it's right on the divine schedule of the Father, that the Son now says right here, the hour has now dawned on me. This is no small thing. The hour for me to die and be resurrected and then glorified has come. I want you to not miss that little phrase, the Son of Man. It would be shameful if I skipped over that little phrase, the Son of Man. 
It was Jesus' favorite phrase that he used about himself. The son of man. Why was that? Why was it his favorite term? Jesus speaks only fitting and powerful words. You know, as soon as Jesus says, the son of man there, he is hearkening back to those words in Daniel. The most remarkable prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Let me read it for you. It says this, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, that is Yahweh, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that's God the Son, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. Jesus goes on in our passage in John to talk about serving Him, might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the hour has come, and it's a glorious preview of astonishing glory. You see, the people, as we know, were of the mind that King Jesus will destroy all Roman oppression, all military might, all political hoo-ha by conquering as the Messiah. But the Son of Man comes not to do that. He comes to destroy, certainly, but He comes to destroy not the military oppression and the political absurdity. He comes to destroy the works of the devil by dying. Don't get it twisted, the Son of Man will rule with a rod of iron over the governments of this earth in that millennial kingdom to come. He will. And they will all give an account for their atrocity. But as He enters here into Jerusalem, the Son of Man who was before the Ancient of Days is sent by the Ancient of Days to suffer, to suffer. And that's where the glory is. That's where the glory is here. The Father sends the Son to die. The Son will ascend back to the Father to share in the glory that they shared before the world was. But here this frail and lonely man in this lowly and suffering state, is sent to lay down his life. Just as there is glory above, there is glory in the suffering servant making his way to the cross. Why? Because the son did not think much of the shame on His way to the cross. That is the glory of God on display. You see, Jesus will be glorified and lifted up, He says. He will radiate to us in this the glory of God by being shamed and mocked and by suffering. He is, after all, the suffering servant of Yahweh that we read about in the book of Isaiah, 
And what we do know is that this humiliation of Jesus is the glory of God to us. Isaiah 52 verse 13 says this, Behold, my servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The one whom I sent to be crushed and to suffer, he will prosper, he will be highly exalted and lifted up. Jesus, after his hour, is lifted high for us to behold. Because he was brought so low. He suffered here in this hour so that he might save us and then be the glory of God to us. God's way of revealing his glory is not by his son conquering the world at this hour, but by crushing his beloved son at this hour. So that his son would then be glorified and highly exalted, get this, as the one who obeyed his father. The one who fulfilled his father's mission and accomplished salvation for all those that the father gave him. That is God's economy. That is how God works. He takes the suffering and the shame in the life of the son and then exalts him. Then he unites us to suffering and shame in our union with Christ, so that we too not only share in his sufferings, but we also share in his exaltation and glory. You understand? We have to understand this. This is how God works to bring glory to himself. He glorifies the Son through His death, and we who are united by faith to the Son share in glory and honor, just like the Son shares in glory and honor from the Father. It's so glorious, and yet it is so difficult for our finite minds to fully comprehend, but that is what it is. A suffering Son unites us to a glorious God abounding in glory so that we can bear fruit in our lives bear fruit in our lives. And as we bear fruit, we bring glory to God here and now. Jesus goes on to illustrate all this in verse 24. Look there in your Bibles, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Back in John 6, Jesus used an agricultural or agrarian illustration, didn't he, when he spoke of himself being the bread of life. The bread of life. Here now, he draws from an agrarian world again by talking about a seed falling to the ground. You see... When I was young, my grandmother used to collect seeds and I would open a little matchbox and there'd be a cotton wool ball in there and there'd be these seeds in there and she'd just keep them tucked away. And if you keep seeds in a matchbox or a tissue or whatever, they'll just live. But if you take those seeds out and throw them to the ground and it rains, they'll die by a rainy death in the ground. But really, only then will they truly live. Because really only then will they sprout and bear fruit. 
And Jesus here is obviously making reference about his death on the cross. He's saying without the death on the cross, there is no life. Do you remember in the wilderness, Satan attempted to get Jesus to turn a stone into bread and Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Do you remember that? Matthew's gospel. Satan was trying to get Jesus to avoid being a seed that falls to the ground and dies. He promised him all the kingdoms of this world. No need for suffering, no need for shame, no need for scorn, certainly no need for the cross. But what did Jesus do? He followed his father. He obeyed his father. He endured the agonies of the cross for the father. For the Father had given Jesus a people to die for from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus, out of His love, a love that He shared between the Father and the Son, He died for those people. He died for you and I. He was moved by the love for the Father to die for the people that He loved as well. You remember back in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden, Jesus in His humanity was so disturbed about what that would mean for Him that in his humanity, he prayed that if there was some other way, some other way that he could be spared from this hour, then can we go down that way, he prayed. But bowing to the Father's will, he got up and he kept going. In his humanity, he stood as our substitute. And that is glory revealed. Because by going to the cross and dying there, Jesus was obeying the Father. And in obeying the Father, he was glorifying the Father. And in obedience to God is the glory of God. Why? Because when we obey God, we show what has our heart and what we treasure. When we disobey God, we show what has our heart and what we treasure. And the Son loved and treasured the Father and wanted the Father to receive glory and honor. Look over at verse 28. We'll be there, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. He says, Father, glorify your name. Not His name, not my name. He said, glorify your name, Father. Jesus loved and treasured the Father, and He wanted the Father to receive glory and honor. And so Jesus is saying here, my death will result in glory of all glory, but that glory is not through living. That glory is through suffering and shame and death and resurrection unto life. This is the grand paradox of our faith. Death is the way to life. Jesus' death led to glory and life, life for Himself and life for all those who believe in Him. Jesus is saying, for there to be anything good and beneficial from the seed, it needs to fall to the ground and die. And the death of the seed is the birth of new life and the bringing forth of fruit. Jesus dies. We die in Him. He works fruit in us as we seek to know Him and to make Him known. And so I want you to know something really incredible here to note down is that Jesus' death 
was something that he was motivated to do because of the fruit that his death would bring in the life of his people. You thought about that before? We sometimes think that Jesus died solely to forgive us our sins. He, it's true. But Jesus is teaching us here that He certainly did die for our sins, but He also died that we would bear fruit in our life. You know, in Isaiah 53 verse 11, there's a beautiful verse. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says this of Jesus, as a result of His anguish, of His soul, He will see it and be satisfied. See what? The fruit of, the fruit of His anguish. The fruit of his, his holy hour. The fruit of His cross. The fruit, that is you and I. His death is our life and fruit. It's the grandest of all paradoxes. He speaks to that paradox now in verse 25, and He expands on it now into the life of the Christian more and more, my life and your life. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Wow. The dying of Jesus pressed into the dying of ourself. We have one very fast life here on this earth. And we only truly live when we're dying to self and following Jesus. Jesus is saying to us very clearly here, you can be so desirous of life, the comforts of life, the possessions of life, the positions in life, the riches and money in life, that you will actually end up alone and unfruitful. Look, look, look at verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. If you love your life, you actually lose it. If you stay on the shelf and do not die like Jesus dies, if you do not die in Him but you love your life, you will remain alone and unfruitful. While you seek the world's comforts and possessions and riches, you will actually end up miserable, alone and unfruitful. The remedy is to hate one's life in this world. When I first read that, I was like, whoa. But you know what? To hate one's life here is the idea of preferring God over the things of this world. D.A. Carson put it so well in his commentary when he said this, quote, this type of person who hates his life in this world, this type of person, chooses not to pander to self-interest, but at the deepest level of their being, declines to make themselves the focus of their interest and perception, thereby dying. They decline, refuse, to make themselves the focus of their interest and their perception. They die to that. 
we can hold on to many things in this world and remain unfruitful and alone. Only by renouncing self and laying hold of more of Jesus is there found true joy and fruitfulness in their life. I remember Joel Beakey, was it here or some other sermon? He said, if you get married, if you're getting married, you just want to be a kind of four as a husband? Or do you want to try and be a five or a seven or an eight or a nine or a ten? You want to be the best husband you can be. What about when you want to be a Christian? Are you you happy just to be a five? No, the heart of the Christian is we want to be a seven or an eight or a nine or a ten. We want want to be a ten. We want to be fully devoted to God all while we battle our flesh. We're not just going to settle for being a mediocre Christian. We need to decline ourselves as the focus of our own interests. Because look, Jesus ramps it up in verse 26 and then we're done. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, says it again, the Father will honor him. We serve Christ. We, we, we delight to serve Him. We know that when we're serving the church or serving other brothers and sisters in the Lord, we're serving Christ. Look what He says, He must follow me, not follow my heart, and not follow my desires, or not some live well kind of modern philosophy, but follow Him. And so when we lay aside more and more of ourself, when we willingly lose more and more of our life. Look what happens, very end. The Father will honor Him. The Father will honor Him. I don't know how many people I've explained this to over the years. You've got a hard decision to make, you've got a hard thing to do. Don't worry about anything else other than what will honor God because when you honor God, you know He will honor you. And I've said that to people over the years as they've faced tough things, and they're like, well, how do you know that? Well, this verse tells you. Lose your own prestige, lose your own reputation, but honor God and He'll honor you. You know, in verse 36 of John 13, Look there. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow later. I have an hour, Jesus is saying. I have an hour to go through. You can't follow me into the depths of that hour, but you will follow me after that. And what that means is this, that we, we walk in the shadow of the cross. Which means we are to walk in deep lowliness and we are to walk as those who participate in the sufferings of Jesus. With the honor of the Father as we do so, ever over 
ever around and ever in us. Stephen Charnock, who wrote The Existence and Attributes of God many, many years ago, he said this, quote, let us look upon a crucified Christ, the remedy of all our miseries. His crown has obtained, his, sorry, His cross has obtained a crown. His passion, this hour, has expiated our transgressions. His death has disarmed the law and His blood has washed our souls. We have much to be motivated by. The glory of God is a motivator for less of us and more of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Thank you, Lord, for this little portion that reminds us that you were faithful to keep your promise that your beloved son wouldn't simply be a savior to Israel, but that he would bring salvation to all nations, including ours in this world. We thank you that he was willing to lay down his life. Father, help us to take seriously the warning here to, to be alone and unfruitful if we love our life. But if we hate our life in this world, we're right where you want us to be. Serving you, following you, and receiving the honor of your Father. And we know the honor of your Father is so precious to you. And would you make it precious to us more and more, even this very moment. For anyone here who doesn't know you, who hasn't come to receive of your goodness, would they come today to receive of mercy and love and grace through the precious Lord Jesus. Help us to lay hold more and more of the eye of faith of our precious Savior and all God's people said.